We continue our series working our way through Luke's gospel. So once again, we turn to Luke's gospel, the fifth chapter. We're going to read verses 27 through 39, 27 through 39. Let's pray together. What a delight it is for us as your people to turn to the word that you have given to us, Lord. This word that comes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is without error in its original autographs given in such a way that we now have a trustworthy Bible. We can rely upon it. We depend upon your promises to us and all that is revealed about your nature and ours and our need and the Redeemer of sinners that has come. We pray, therefore, for those who may be in our midst who do not know Christ and pray that as Christ is expounded from the text, No matter what that text may be, it's about Jesus and that the heart of the unbeliever may be granted saving faith, that that unbeliever may leave here a saved man, woman, or child. And now, Father, also we, your people, we need your word, and we pray that you will help us week after week after week to see Jesus on the page of Scripture. For Father, this Sunday we are closer to the grave than we were last. We are closer to heaven than we were last. We are closer to the return of Christ than we were last. There is an urgency about hearing your word. Open our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing with your copy of God's word in your hand, Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. This is the word of God. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh 
wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Please be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, when you were called out of darkness into light, it was a greater miracle than when God created the world. Calling is a theme, a remarkable theme in Holy Scripture and in this gospel. And in the midst of the growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, we see here the unexpected call of an unlikely disciple and the great joy of the gospel that is the consequence. So let's get right to it. The first thing we see in the text is Jesus calls Levi. Jesus calls Levi. The text says he looked at Levi. He observed Levi. Someone here may never have looked at Jesus, but Jesus may well have looked at you with the intent of redeeming and saving you. Jesus singled out a rejected and despised tax collector. This is contrary to all the cultural views of to whom God would show mercy. The Pharisee knew he needed mercy, but not that much. And certainly if mercy was going to be shown, it would be shown to someone doing Pharisaic works, not someone like Levi, the tax collector. There was general contempt for tax collectors where taxes were gathered for the Roman treasury and in Galilee and Perea for Herod, for whom Levi would have worked. Jesus calls Levi. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. This is electing grace at work in operation This is electing love and sovereign mercy. There was nothing in Levi that would commend Levi to salvation. It is sovereign, effectual calling, and irresistible grace. I was reflecting upon this passage and other themes of calling in the book of Luke, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, of course, came to mind. It reminds me, I think, of the little boy who said, my parents want me to memorize the Westminster Cataclysm, but... It's a cataclysm, I think, if we don't spend time with it. And this is what the catechism has to say. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And so in effectual calling then and in effectual calling now, after the ascension of Jesus, the Spirit of God has been poured out, the word of Jesus has sovereign authority, effectual calling and irresistible grace. Jesus' words bring divine compulsion. Jesus calls sinners to himself, all sorts of people from all sorts of background. There is no one here that is too sinful to be called to the Savior, Jesus Christ. For you see, Jesus calls, and secondly, we see Levi follows. In verse 28, we read that he left all, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He left all. Peter, you will remember, left his boat. Levi leaves his booth and his livelihood. Now, what does discipleship mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to leave all. 
Yes, it means that you and I as disciples are called to leave all and follow Jesus because Jesus is worthy. For Levi, it meant forsaking his occupation to follow Jesus. For you, it means being willing to forsake that if that is the call of Jesus in your life. For most of us, the call is simply the attitude of heart. Ultimately, it means forsaking of self to follow Jesus. So let me ask this question of someone here this morning. You know who you are. What is standing in the way of your following Jesus? What is it that so grips your heart that you don't want to give it up? What is it that when you hear the gospel, you know if you follow Jesus, your life is going to have to change and change radically because grace does that to a person and you don't want that change in your life? Or let me ask this. What has come into the life of some true believer here that is in the way of your walk with Christ? You were walking well, now you are not, because something is in your life that doesn't belong there. Forsake it. Jesus is worthy. Do you think that thing is more worthy of your time than Jesus? Do you think that thing, that person, that job, that money, that attitude, that thing, whatever it is, do you think it's more worthy than love for Jesus, than affection for Christ? You know what it is. I don't have to give a list and speculate. Someone here knows there's something I need to give up. May the sovereign effectual word of Jesus come this morning as the word of God is preached, and may this be the time in which that thing is dropped and you follow Jesus indeed. But thirdly, we see that Jesus hosts a feast. Now you say, wait a minute, pastor, it's Levi that hosts the feasts. Oh, I meant it the way I said it. Uh, Jesus hosts the feast. Now we read in verse 29 that Levi holds the feast. He wants people to meet Jesus. Because when we come to know Jesus, we want other people to know Jesus, don't we? That's what Levi wanted. But note well who was invited in verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now note the sort of people. They are not the kinds of people that the Pharisees would approve. Later, they grumbled against Jesus, learning about the guest list. The Pharisees are deeply offended that Jesus is sitting with these tax collectors and eating with them. And so it brings controversy. In verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Henri Blochet, French Reformed author, says, Suffering and persecution are a general law for God's servants in the world. More often than not, our willingness to be taught by God means the acceptance of suffering and pain. Well, this was certainly true of our Savior, and the servant is not above his master, and so it brings conflict and controversy. The word here, gongudzo, you can even hear the word is intended to sound like grumbling, muttering, complaining. The term is used in the Old Testament of Israel's grumbling in the desert, and now these Pharisees continue what their fathers had done. Grumbling always shows a heart problem. And they take direct, indirect aim at Jesus, but Jesus answers the question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, that's exactly what he did. 
He ate with tax collectors and sinners, thank God. He came for sinners like me and like you. He came to fellowship with sinners to save sinners. That's exactly what he did. This comes up again in chapter 7 in verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I'm going to give an aside. I rarely do that in preaching. I am pretty straightforward, move through the text, and do very little asides, but I think it's important to do that this morning. Sometimes this passage or others like it are used by Christians to think that they can expose themselves to anything. After all, Jesus ate with sinners, we're told. And so I can go and I can participate in this or that because after all, it's going to give me a tremendous opportunity to witness. And you know good and well the sorts of things I'm talking about do not encourage witness but destroy witness bearing. Listen, we are to love the lost and have relationships with lost people, but we are also called to be godly and to be wise, and there are some things with which you must not associate for the sake of your master. There are some gatherings from which you must exempt yourself for the sake of your soul. Seek the lost? Yes. Make certain sorts of gatherings an excuse for sin? No. Christ associated with sinners and never condoned their sins and always called them out of sin to himself. So when someone says to me, I can go to that orgy and I can, I can be a godly person in the midst of it, after all, Jesus ate with sinners, my answer to them, first of all, is you're not Jesus. Jesus was the holy, sinless son of God. You're not Jesus. And you need to be aware of your heart and your soul and where certain sorts of things can lead. But also, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is the host of the feast. Levi called it, but Jesus is the host. He has it completely in control. And that's not going to be true of you and me in most cases. We are told in this book, chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So let's focus there. Now, I think that Luke intends for us to see the host as projecting, projecting us forward into the future when there will be this great eschatological feast at the end of the age and from all the ends of the earth, lost sinners saved by grace will eat in the Messianic feast. The whole of the Old Testament and Old Testament uh, oriental thought on feasting informs what we read here. They reclined at table with Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, eating with sinners. So what does this suggest? Well, we heard it in the passage that was read by Pastor McDonald this morning, and there are many like it. Jesus is the one who holds the feast. He is the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies hunger. He is the heavenly manna. He is the water of life. He quenches thirst forever. He is the wine of the world to come. The feast of the last days imparting life even now. Blessed is he that shall eat the bread in the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 15. Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 9. 
And so by this meal, we see something of the grace of God, that Jesus, the Son of God, comes into this world and he eats and fellowships with sinners in order to redeem and to save them. And by this meal, we see an anticipation of the banquet that we sinners sit at the Lord's table, even this morning, anticipating that great feast that is to come, a revelation of the forgiveness of sins that has come through Jesus Christ our Lord. But fourthly, and perhaps most importantly in this passage, you will have noticed that Jesus reveals his mission. Jesus reveals his mission. Let's look again at verses 31 through 32. Jesus answered them saying, remember the question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So how does Jesus answer the Pharisees? He focuses his answer on the sinner's need, my need and yours. My mission is not to righteous people, but to lost people. Sinners may, may repent, but those who think that they're righteous see no need to repent. The Pharisees think that they are justified in their works righteousness. Now, it's popular today in certain circles and universities when they're talking about Pharisees to think that that's all wrong. That's a totally wrong view of the Pharisees. But it's time after time found in the Gospels, time after time revealed in Paul's epistles. This was the view of the Pharisees. And let me remind you, there is a Pharisee in every heart. My favorite quotation from the great New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen is this one. The Judaism of the Pauline period does not seem to have been characterized by a profound sense of sin, and the reason is not far to seek. The legalism of the Pharisees, with its regulation of the minute details of life, was not really making the law too hard to keep. It was really making it too easy. Jesus said to his disciples, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. The truth is, it is easier to cleanse the outside of the cup than it is to cleanse the heart. If the Pharisees had recognized that the law demands not only the observance of external rules, but also and primarily mercy and justice and love for God and men, they would not have been so readily satisfied with the measure of their obedience. And the law would then have fulfilled its great function of being a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. A low view of law leads to legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. The problem with the Pharisees They thought the law was keepable and that they could earn righteousness by keeping it. When grace opens the heart, we see it is a reflection. The law is a reflection of the holiness of God, and I am undone. I can do nothing to save myself, to redeem myself, or to bring myself into a savable state. And God himself uses the law in order to make us to be seekers after grace by showing us our real and genuine need. The Pharisees didn't see their need. Do you see your need? The repentant heart is an open heart, open to God, 
open to his word, open to his son, opened by grace. The unrepentant heart is closed and self-centered and wants its own way. And so I ask, which is true of you? Do you see your need? The Pharisees did not see their need, and no one will apart from the grace of God. Spurgeon somewhere said, there is no power that you possess. He's talking to the unbeliever. It's not a pleasant comment, but it's a true one. There's no power that you possess that does not have the slime of the serpent upon it. But you will not see yourself, and I will not see myself that way, apart from the grace of God. If you, I'm talking to the unbeliever here, if you could see yourself, I mean the lost, the believers clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but this was once true of me and of you as well if you were a believer. If you could see yourself as God sees you in his court of law, condemned under his law, that you have traded the image of God for that of the evil one, what an overwhelmingly dreadful sight that would be. Now, this sin and self-righteousness can take many forms, and sometimes it's surprising to us. It can take the form of lasciviousness and greed, but also of religion and morality and giving to the poor. But Jesus' point is that everyone has need of the great physician. Everyone needs him. Corruption of heart does not work its way out the same way in every individual. But it's true nonetheless that we all have corrupt hearts in need of redemption. And the Pharisees refused to own up to that truth. Someone here, maybe you are beginning to have a certain sense of your need. Maybe the Spirit of God is working in your heart, but you still say, my case is so very deep and complicated. One old divine from years ago said, you cannot tie a knot of sin which Christ cannot untie. And that is very true. Christ can cure your disease, whatever it is, no matter how chronic it has become. Now, I think that you'll see how this text, this next section, how it all hangs together and why it's necessary that we look at the next section of the text that we read together. So, fifthly, Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings joy. The Pharisees were addicted to a system of law, works righteousness, that is contrary to the method by which God saves sinners, which is by sheer grace. The method of grace comes to the fore in this section, and the antithesis of salvation by works and grace is stressed. John's disciples fast and pray. Jesus' disciples eat and drink. And so the Pharisees look at Jesus' disciples eating and drinking, and they say to them, why aren't you like John's disciples? Uh, Why are you eating and drinking? Why aren't you fasting? And basically, why aren't you mourning all the time? A huge issue is here because fasting was central to Jewish piety. But the basic point is simply this. The Pharisees lived a life of constant mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, constant grieving, constant mourning. Jesus' disciples knew they were sinners, but they knew they were saved, 
Jesus was there, and they lived a life, the trajectory of which was rejoicing. Jesus' answer in verse 34 is very, very telling. Jesus said to them, can you make a wedding guest, make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? A wedding is not the time to fast, is it? I've never yet been to a wedding at Covenant Presbyterian Church in which we put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned. It's not a time to fast. Groom and wedding, as a matter of fact, as we like to point out often at our weddings, groom and wedding are messianic images. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, and other places. So Jesus is saying to them, why should my disciples mourn? They have the Messiah right here with them. Now there's a time to fast, but not now. When Jesus is removed by the cross, there will be time to mourn. But then remember, he will rise from the dead and he will give a spirit. And even though there may be some times that are appropriate for us to grieve before the Lord as believers, the trajectory of the believer's life is one of joy. It's not trouble-free. It's not filled with what the world thinks of as happiness, but it is filled with a real deep down joy. By the way, rarely do we find fasting in the church, even in the book of Acts. Certainly, it's not the norm. Fasting was exercise usually when the church was trying to assess God's will for moving ahead in some mission. But I think the words of William Hendrickson apply to believers now. Listen to Professor Hendrickson. For those who acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior, the proper attitude of heart and mind is not that of sadness, but that of gladness. If it be true that God with us, Emmanuel, spells joy for believers... Should not God within us, the situation on and after Pentecost, awaken in every child of God joy unspeakable and full of glory? It is not Christian if we are constantly going around mourning and grieving. I can say that in light of this text and others, but most of all, in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus in Luke 24, we read, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So you see, there's a difference here, an antithesis. The difference in the old Pharisaic, down-in-the-mouth approach that was the result of works righteousness And the approach that realized that Jesus is the gracious giver of joy as illustrated by the parables that he brings here. If you sew new cloth on old, it will tear the fabric and make it worse. Indeed, you ruin the new garment to patch the old. Meaning, you cannot take a works righteousness approach and apply it to the grace method of salvation in Jesus. Or you cannot put new wine in old wineskin, the sheep or goat skin will become brittle and the new wine when it ferments will burst the wineskin. The old method of Pharisaism and the new method of grace, this fresh method of grace, these two things cannot be commingled. New wine must be put into new wineskins. But the problem with the Pharisaic heart is they become 
become so so much in love with their own approach, with their works, their attempt at righteousness, their mourning. So how can we love such a thing? Because the sinful heart loves the things that kill us. They become so in love, enamored of that old way of life. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. We need to taste grace. And that will change everything. The Pharisees were so attached to their corrupt, mournful, works righteousness approach that they saw no need of Jesus. And that's the saddest of sad things, isn't it? So attached to death that one sees no need of life. So lost that one has no desire for Jesus. And it's really true what an old philosopher said. He can only be happy under a dispensation of law who can live a lifelong lie. Only that person who is kidding himself, fooling himself, thinking everything's going to be okay in the end. I give to the poor. I'm nice to my neighbors. In the end, it's going to work out just fine at the judgment seat. I know there's a judgment coming. My conscience tells me that. But look, all is going to be well because I, I live under however you perceive law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or someone who has some other view of law, because the work of the law is written on everyone's heart. You can only be happy under that dispensation of law if you are willing to live a lifelong lie. It's a lie, and you're lying to yourself if you can be happy under that. Happy without Jesus, happy without grace, happy without the cross, the resurrection without mercy. The Pharisees never learned to pour contempt on all their pride. They never learned that grace flows downhill. Have we? Have you? There's a tremendous difference that has come into our lives. The tone of our lives is totally different than that of works righteousness Because Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus intercedes, Jesus is coming, and he indwells us by his spirit, and we have been given a totally different and new point of view that gives us joy. So you see, Jesus calls Levi. That call is so totally, infinitely grace-filled that the Pharisees can't stand it. They cannot abide it. And the whole situation gives the opportunity for us, for us to understand the joy of grace, the joy of the gospel. Geldenheis, fine commentator on Luke, says this, Just as the new forms of religion brought by Jesus could not tolerate any compromise with the old forms, so it is also with the new life which every regenerated person finds in Christ. The acceptance of this new life demands the renunciation of all forms of 
the old life of sin and unbelief. There must be no mixing with the former kind of life to which a man was accustomed before his conversion. Jesus desires and is able to make everything new in the life of the believer. There must be no mixing with the former kind of life to which a man was accustomed before his conversion. Jesus desires and is able to make everything new in the life of the believer. How true that is. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This text then calls us to get our identity right. We're sinners forgiven. We are sinners justified. We were former outcasts, but now we recline with Jesus at his table, sharing the joy of the messianic banquet to come. We are disciples of Jesus. He has all of my heart. Once I was lost, now I am found, and I am filled, therefore, with great joy. And people share what they enjoy, don't they? Hmm. He speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear him. Ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. And God's people said, 